In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, she has shown, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Thank you. You may be seated. I know it's been a a bit since we've been in 1 Timothy um, and our journey through the pastoral epistles, which again will go 1 Timothy, Titus, then 2 Timothy. So let me kind of remind you where we've been in general, and then our immediate context. Uh, First Timothy, uh, Paul has written this letter to Timothy. He's left Timothy in Ephesus to take care of matters going on there in the Ephesian church. He's addressing issues, problems, certain people, certain groups in the church, how to handle them. He's calling them to uh, stand strong on the pure, right, good doctrine, the apostolic doctrine that Timothy has been entrusted with. And the theme we said of, of 1 Timothy was found in chapter 3, and that was so that somebody might know how to conduct themselves in the church, which is the household of God, a, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So the last time we were in 1 Timothy, we just did verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, and it was talking about how to um, how to handle different Groups, different people in the church, older men, younger men, older women, younger women. And and we saw there that we are to operate as a church with the mindset of a family. Um, And we're we're to treat each other like we would treat our own family. Well, today we turn our attention to widows. And it's just like God to, to take a passage like this. Um, that really, I think if, if I just said, hey, we're going to talk about widows this week, probably most of us would go, eh, right? I mean, not that we don't care, but is it pertinent? Does it matter? 
I mean, I look around, we do have a couple of what we call widows in our midst. Um, and how do we care for them? How do we care for them in the midst of a welfare state where there's a safety net and there's programs that help take care of people uh, apart from the church having to do it? Is the context applicable is the question. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to rewind back several months and I want to read just a passage. This is not in my slides, but just I want to read this passage back from Ruth 3. If you remember Ruth, we were talking about redemption and we were dealing with Ruth and Naomi who were both widows. And here in Ruth 3, Ruth has gone to the threshing floor where Boaz is laying and she's making her move. She's, she's um, basically proposing to him. And this is what she says. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet, exclamation point. He said, who are you? And she answered, now watch this, I am Ruth, your servant. Anybody remember what she says next? Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Okay? Now, back when we went through Ruth, we talked about that, and there was nothing naughty about that this was this was plain and good and pure and and Ruth had had approached Boaz asking to be covered she uncovered his feet and basically the ceremony would go he would take that cover and cover her and he was saying I will become your covering okay that concept of covering is going to be so important as we begin here today so we'll start in verse 3 of 1st Timothy Five, honor widows who are truly widows. Now, that's it's not a very inspiring memory verse, right? <laughs> uh, so it starts with the word honor. And remember, we're talking about how we're to conduct ourselves in the church, how we're to treat each other within the church um, as family. And here, honor widows who are truly widows. Now, the word honor here is kind of multi-leveled. Uh, it means to show respect, to honor somebody, and it also holds in it a meaning of support, okay? The money that the church gives us as elders is called an honorarium, okay? There's definitely a sense here in the word honor in 1 Timothy 5.3 that's not just respect, but calls us to support as well. Paul is not saying only to hold these women, these widows, in high respect, but also to help them financially. Now, they should be held in high regard, and they should be shown respect, but just so we're clear here, the focus in the text is not going to be how our heart attitude is toward them, whether we venerate them or respect them, but it's going to be more about how do we help them, how do we best direct the church, and how to care for widows in their financial needs, in living. And now that word widow also needs some clarification. We default to widows being those whose husbands have passed away, and that's certainly true, okay? But it also includes those who have lost their husbands in other ways. Maybe it's desertion. Maybe it's divorce. Those who have fled uh, an abusive relationship. 
The word widow can refer to any loss of the marriage relationship for the woman. Now that's going to be very important because if you look here, the word for widow comes from two root words that mean chasm and covering. Okay, so a widow is somebody who there is a chasm between her and her covering. There's a gulf, a great distance between these women and the covering or the protection and provision of their husband. And again, that's very, very, very important. We've already referenced men's and women's roles in a couple of passages in 1 Timothy. And to properly understand what a widow is here, we have to see that any woman who has lost her covering, her protection, her provision who has had their marriage dismantled, any woman who is separated from their marriage in some way and has lost their protection, provision, their covering, is deemed a widow. Why? Because, biblically, back to creation, if you look at Paul's other letters, if you look at Ephesians, husbands are tasked all through the Scripture with protecting, providing for, and keeping their wives safe. Women, then, as wives, among many other roles that they have, are to be protected, are to be provided for, are to be kept safe by those husbands. Now, we have lost so much of this in our culture. You've come a long way, baby. I can bring home the bacon fried up in a pan. Please hear what I'm about to say. These roles that we're discussing biblically have nothing to do with ability. It's not, can a woman be a breadwinner? Can a woman provide for a family? That's not the question. The question is, how has God designed the marriage relationship? What roles has God assigned to the husband and to the wife? And what lack is there with a wife who has lost her covering? This is a roles issue. To lose the covering, the help, the protection, the provision makes these widows vulnerable and at the risk of destitution. Again, it's a roles issue. We go back to the creation narrative again and see that it wasn't good for man to be alone, so God made a helper suitable for him. And when the curses were given out after they sinned, the woman's curse was seen in her desire for her husband and in childbearing. And where was the curse primarily for the man? In work. Intending the ground. God intended for the man to work and provide. And he intended for the woman to help the man and bear children. And that's not a menial task. Our culture would say, oh, poor thing, she's wasting her life. She's just at home taking care of the kids. God help us that we would understand the true nature of the work that women do as homemakers, as mothers, and as wives. And while cultures, times, and expectations change, listen to me, church, God's design does not change. 
has not, will not. And we'll talk more about this later. So don't tune me out just yet. We've got to develop that thought. But I wanted to establish here that widows are those who have lost their protection and provision by a loss of their marriage relationship. And it doesn't just have to be death. It can be any loss of the marriage relationship qualifies a woman to be a widow. And at the time of Paul's letter to Timothy, a woman who had lost her husband, however that may have happened, had lost more than just a personal relationship. She had lost her covering. She had lost her support. And so many times had lost her hope. So what was to be done for these ladies? Well, you honor them if they are truly widows. Now, what's that mean? Well, it means a lot, okay? If they truly have no support. Look at verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So there are those who have some support from other places besides their husband. Here, Paul says that the church is to first compel the widow's children and or grandchildren to be that covering of support and protection. Those widows who have children or grandchildren around are to be taken care of by their progeny. Paul says that these offspring are to first learn to show godliness to their own household. Christianity begins in the home. Christianity works best, works first at home. Or it doesn't work. If if it isn't applied in your own household, in your own family, then there's no sense in talking about reaching the nations or applying it elsewhere. Show your godliness first to those who are in need in your own family. And so these widows are cared for without taxing the church's resources. And Paul also says that in doing so, these children and grandchildren are making some return to their parents. I think we're a little bit uncomfortable with this thought pattern, but I don't think we should be. They're making some return. It was mom who cooked, cleaned, clothed, and on and on and on throughout these children's lives. It was a financial and physical and mental and emotional and spiritual investment that she made in her children. And by being cared for by them now, these widows are reaping a just return for that investment kids. And Paul notes that this is pleasing in the sight of God. And this is pretty important too. God himself sees this return being made and it pleases him. That's pretty important, don't you think? We are to seek to please him in all that we do. And know for sure, God is very clear that caring for widows is very high on his list of things that please him. The Old Testament is full of God's directions on caring for widows. Author Austin Walker says that there are about 80 references to widows in the Bible. 80. That's a lot. There are times when God condemns Israel and other nations for neglecting widows. And Psalm 68.5 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. And note that. This, this caring for widows who have lost their hope, who have lost their covering, this is a big deal to God because it's his design. If a woman loses her covering, 
then God makes it a priority to care for her. Even sitting in the highest of heavens, one of God's chief concerns is caring for widows. Should it not be one of ours as well? For this is pleasing in the sight of God. And the widows are to know this too. Look at verse 5. Oh, did I skip a verse? No, I just didn't. I've got it on there twice. I don't know why I've got it on there twice. There we go, verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. If a woman is a widow and left all alone, she is then to turn her attention, set her hope on, who or what? On God. So God has turned His attention to her, and now she is to turn her attention to Him. She is to know that God takes special interest in her plight, and so she is to set her hope, put all of her eggs in the God basket. She is to trust Him to care for her. And this shows by what she gives herself to. She continues in supplications and prayers night and day. She's always talking to God. She's turned her hope to Him. She's put her faith and her hope in Him. And she's always talking to Him. She's praying and she's asking Him to help others. Supplications are prayers for others. She's focused on God and others, which is the very fulfillment of God's plan and purpose for all of us. This is the type of lady who is to be considered a true widow. Left all alone, but hoping in God and praying for others. This is a widow worthy of the church's support. Some, however, are not like this. Verse 6. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. There are those who have lost their spouse, their covering, who turn their focus inward. Instead of trusting God and serving others through prayer, she's self-indulgent. That word means to live luxuriously, given to pleasure. Focused on the here and now, getting what she feels she deserves, enjoying the fruit of her life now. And that self-focus is what the problem is. Now there's nothing wrong with having things or reaping the fruit of a well-lived life, a well-planned life. But this woman is focused on me, myself, and I. And she's thinking she's getting what she deserves. And the Holy Spirit, through Paul, says that this type of widow is dead even while she lives. Now it seems harsh, but it just means that there's no hope or help for her. She's getting her reward now, and being focused on that, it's really emptying her life of worth and joy. Her shelter, her covering is now pleasure. Her enjoying things for herself. And Paul says the end of that is she's dead even while she lives. Yikes. Verse 7. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. Paul calls Timothy to not only tell the church and the widows and the families in Ephesus this stuff, he tells Timothy to command these things. These are apostolic teachings. They are the very words of God given so his people might know how they ought to conduct themselves in the church, which is the household of God, which is our theme, if you'll remember, for 1 Timothy. So Timothy, command these things. 
What I read there in verse 6, like I said, sounds a little bit harsh. And Paul's saying, don't back down from this. Don't soft sell it. Command it. My grandma told me many times, never apologize for something God has said. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here. He's like, don't apologize for this. Command these things. These are apostolic teachings, the very words of God. So that the people who make up the church there, the widows and those caring for them, may be without reproach. There's a goal to keep the law and the teachings of God. Why? For His glory and for our good. And these widows and those caring for them are to keep these commands without fault. And while widows are engaged here, so are those who are to care for them. Verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is probably the most famous verse in this passage. So there's definite shift here from widows. There's a turn from focus on the widows themselves to those who are in place in their lives to help them, these widows. And this shows that it's not just up to the church to care for widows. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, this is to speak to the children and the grandchildren we saw back in verse 4. If there are children or grandchildren who do not provide for their, his relatives, and especially for members of his household, now note the his and the he here. Who is it that he's speaking to? Who is he tasking with provision and protection? The man. The males in the families. He, his. The one designated to protect and provide. The male is to make sure that relatives and those of his household are cared for. And that's not to say the ladies don't play a part, and we'll see later that he does speak to that as well. But he and his here are responsible to do so. Fellas, make sure those in the generations before you are cared for if they lose their spouses. If they lose their covering, you become their covering. Now again, some widows have plenty and are amply supplied. He doesn't have to care for them as far as support, as far as covering. But if they need care, level one for care for the widow is the child and or grandchild, particularly the men who are in place to care for, protect, and provide for his family. If something I dread to think about it should happen to my father, my mother lives beside us, it's time for me to step up. Now, my mother will be taken care of financially, but if she needs something done, it's going to be on me, it's going to be on John, it's going to be on Asa primarily. Now, I'm not saying Amanda, Hannah, and Lily won't help out, but we become that covering. And if we don't, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. This is not a little thing now, is it? If this man doesn't take stock of the needs in his family and seek to help those in need as his relatives, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's not necessarily saying that he's not saved. It's saying that he's not living out his faith. 
One of the most basic premises of being a Christian is caring for other people. And even unbelievers care for their own families. So if a believing brother does not address and help the widows in his family, he's dropping the ball on one of the simplest, clearest charges he has. Take care of your own. So, sure... As sure as there have been issues with widows in Ephesus, there will also be issues with family members not taking care of those widows as well. And Paul addresses it and calls Timothy to address it head on as well. I would guess that so much of the need for the widows in Ephesus would have been taken care of if the families in place just stepped up and did what they should have. So then it would not be an issue for the church corporate, but for the church members individually. That's the goal. That's primary goal one. If there is a widow, her relatives take care of her. And if her, widow, if the, if her relatives don't take care of her, they're worse than an unbeliever. Because even unbelievers take care of their aging parents and parents in need. Now, back to the widows, verses 9 and 10. Now, watch this. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Now this is interesting. Don't miss this. this there's something going on here. Here Paul is giving requirements for widows to be enrolled. Enrolled in what? Care and protection, that's what we were talking about earlier. So that's what this is, right? It's it's enroll them for care and protection if this. Maybe, maybe not. Look at these requirements again. There's eight of them. She's not less than 60 years of age. She's been the husband of the wife of one husband. She has a reputation for good works. She's brought up children, she's shown hospitality, she's washed the feet of the saints, she's cared for the afflicted, and she's devoted herself to every good work. So is this saying that if these eight things aren't in place, then no care will be received from the church? Sorry, you're 58. Hope you struggle through the next couple of years till we can help you. Good luck. Hope you make it. Or pick an item and say a widow doesn't meet one of those requirements, or two or three. What's funny is these requirements sound an awful lot like what we saw with elders and deacons back in chapter 3. So what's going on here? John MacArthur saves the day, I think, here. Quote, In the early church, it is apparent, and it is apparent implicitly rather than explicitly that there was in the local church, in the early church, a group of widows who were given a semi-official or official status as servants of the church. He goes on to say, the early church, by the way, we know kept that list from this particular passage, but also later on in the third century, it shows up again in a writing called the Didascalia, and it shows up again in the 4th century in the Apostolic Constitution that there was a specially qualified group of bereft women for whom regulations were given by which they were added to that list and put into service for the Lord in the church. They did much charitable work and their sphere of ministry was primarily in the home and with younger women. End of quote. 
Oh, now that makes sense. When I first heard him say that, I'm like, oh, come on, that's a cop-out. Obviously, he's talking about widows that can be cared for, widows that can receive care from the church. And I didn't agree with him at first. Of course, he built a very solid case. And you start doing the research and you start to see, oh, that, that, that stuff that he's saying is true. So it seems pretty plausible. It's like there's a shift here. I think Paul's instruction to Timothy earlier in the passage was clear in saying that if someone is a true widow, regardless of the situation, she is to be cared for by the church if she is alone, has no family, has no means of support. Can you imagine the church looking at somebody and saying, sorry, you don't meet the qualifications, we're not caring for you. I mean, that's not going to happen. Right? That's not the tone of what Paul's saying here. Okay? The church becomes this woman's covering, her protection, her provision. But to give these specifics here doesn't seem like he's changing and saying, Oh no, I forgot to mention there's qualifications to be met for support. Just doesn't make sense. I don't think so. This thought, reinforced by later church history, seems to be something else. A different thought here that that was understood by Timothy. Timothy was like, oh, he's talking about... The serving uh, widows. And what a calling. What a ministry. What a purpose and a joy in the later years of life. One of my favorite Hamlet Smith stories. He told me about meeting with an older person who was feeling like they were, I think they were well advanced in years. Like I've lost hope, I've lost my purpose. And Hamlet grabbed a piece of paper And he handed it to the lady. And he said, I've got nine children. Pray for my nine children. And that's a gloriously high calling. And it's enough to keep you busy for the rest of your life. MacArthur moaned about widows retiring and moving away in their most, possibly the most fruitful time of their life. Instead of engaging in ministry, engaging in the work of the church, they retired to Palm Springs. And John Piper would say, and collect seashells. And what a tragedy. What a purpose and joy in the later years of life. It would appear that these widows didn't just receive help from the church, but rather they also served the church in some capacity as far as ministering. And I would say some of those who were serving weren't even supported by the church. Imagine a group of widows serving the church this way. Imagine a group of widows going from house to house, meeting with the younger ladies, teaching them to serve and love their husbands, to teach and love their children, and to keep their homes in a godly way. Give me some of that. And these ladies who were called to do this ministering, who were to be enrolled, were to be held to strict requirements similar to elders and deacons to make sure there weren't, they weren't just out there hobnobbing, watching their stories, my grandma would say. <laughs> just hanging out. And now the, 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 and the thing today is, and watch out ladies, and I'm, I'm coming at you a little bit direct, There is a strong push in our culture for women to be drinking wine. I saw something the other day. Somebody was talking about how hard things were at their house. And somebody said, that means it's time to pour. Paul's saying, don't let that happen. 
Don't let that be the focus. Don't, don't let them just go from house to house, watch soap operas, and drink wine. That's what we would say in our day and time. As a matter of fact, it was clear that some ladies couldn't take part in these ministry opportunities. They wouldn't be enrolled. Verses 11 and 12. But refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Wowzers. Here it seems he's explaining the age requirement mentioned above, 60, no less than 60 years old. Don't enroll younger widows younger than 60. Why? For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. Now, Paul is not saying here that marriage is bad. But he's saying, if somebody says, I want to devote my life as a widow to serving the church and the ladies of the church, and they're younger, and a couple years up the road, they go, man, it'd be awful nice to be married. And we all have desires, right? That's what he's saying. Don't enroll enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. Younger single women will ultimately have a desire to be with a man, to be active sexually, to have companionship. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you've been enrolled in ministry to and for the church, to serve the church as a single widowed woman, then you end up married again. You can't fulfill the role that you signed up for. Paul talks about this as far as marriage and singleness. He says the married man is concerned with how to please his wife. Whereas a single man doesn't have that concern. Same thing here. A, a, a widowed woman doesn't have the, the desire or the, the issues of trying to keep her household. She can just devote herself to ministering to other people. And you can't sign up for that. That's what I want to do in a moment of religious fervor. And then later go, you know what? I'd kind of like to be married and have a household. Their passions draw them away from Christ, away from ministry to the church, which is his body, and so they incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now, faith here can be uh, translated as vow or declaration or devotion. It's not talking about losing their salvation. It's not talking about saving faith. We talked about this some Wednesday night as far as have I lost my faith. If my faith is small, no, you haven't lost your saving faith. You just need to exercise the faith that lives out what you believe. So it's not necessarily deconstruction or apostasy, but a going back on a vow or a call to ministry. And God doesn't take that lightly. So don't enroll these younger widows in this service and ministry. And again, this makes really good sense in figuring this passage out. He goes on to describe what happens with some of these younger widows. Verse 13. I don't know if I'm working here. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. In what was probably a very public ministry in the lives of the members of the church, there's a lot of interaction with others. There's a lot of needs. There's a lot of hurts. There's a lot of older women talking to younger women about their marriages and and their children. And these younger widows are going from house to house, not working or ministering, but being idle. They're not ministering, they're just hanging out. And when you hang out, men and women, you start to gossip. You start to get over-involved in the wrong ways in people's lives. Gossips and busybodies, saying things they shouldn't say. I got a prayer request. I was talking to Mary the other day, and oh, she's in a bad place. Oh, what's her bad place? Oh, I probably shouldn't say, but I guess if we're going to pray, we might, I might as well tell you. 
And again, this is not just a female issue, it's a male and female issue, but here he's speaking specifically to these younger widows. It's a constant temptation, especially, Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for these younger widows who are over-involved in the lives of church members that they should be serving. So then what? Verse 14. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion occasion for slander. It's pretty clear. If a lady is widowed and if she wants to do God's will, get married, a younger widow. And yeah, that might be easier said than done in some situations, but rather than jumping into a vow to serve and minister all the time for the rest of my life, then deciding that it would be nice to get married, just look to marry, bear children, and manage your households. That, again, is serious, godly, church-blessing ministry. It's not second class. It's not any less necessary than what the full-time serving widows are doing. Quite the opposite. It's biblical and holy. And so, instead of starting and then stopping, going back on a vow, do what is godly, and so give the adversary no occasion for slander. The enemy loves to see Jesus' followers start and then stop something or go back on a vow. He loves to publicly shame and ridicule these sinning saints. And Paul says, don't give them the opportunity. Younger widows, get married. Do what young ladies do and glorify God by raising a godly family. And that sounds oversimplistic, but it's just good sound logic. Especially when dealing with how young widows can best serve Jesus and his church. And it works, but not everyone has worked the system in the best way that she could. Verse 15, for some have already strayed after Satan. Just a statement to say that some younger widows have already fell into this trap. They've started into ministry possibly, doing what godly widows do, but they fail, they backed out, they sinned possibly, and in so doing they're falling into Satan's trap. They've strayed after Satan. And that may seem harsh, but again, either they're serving the Lord and His people or they're straying into Satan's trap. There's no middle ground. And again, that's for all of us. And widows, just like the rest of us, have two roads to choose from. You can choose God's path or you can choose Satan's path. And God offers options for His people to follow Him instead of straying after Satan. And then one last statement before we end our passage today. Verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. I said we were going to see this later, and here we are. So we get one last chance for widows to be cared for here in the last verse. Widows who have relatives that are believing women should receive care from them if possible. We saw the he and him earlier, and now the she and her comes in too. If a widow has no man in her family to take care of her, but does have a believing woman, that believing woman is to help the widows around her too. That's just another layer of protection to add to the widow's possible support group. Any believing family member, male or female, is desirous to having the church corporate care for a widow. And it's not cold or unfeeling, it's just good stewardship. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. There are enough widows who really need the support, so if anyone can help within the family, they should do so. Again, it seems oversimplistic, but it's just good, sound logic. And so what we see in this whole passage is this. There are people 
There are ladies who have lost their covering. They've lost their protection, their provision, and they need help. Their first layer of help should come from their children or their grandchildren. If they can care for themselves, that's fine too. They should still have somebody around who can protect them if they need something done, whatever. And then, of course, if there are other ladies, other maybe even these ministering widows who can help them, so be it. Paul is basically saying the church is the last resort in caring for widows. It should be the last resort. Because the church has a lot going on. And it's not that the widows aren't important, but if somebody else can care for them, they should care for them. And then if nobody else is there, if that woman has truly lost all of her support, all of her covering, the church will gladly step in and protect and provide for that woman regardless of why her marriage is over, regardless of why she lost that protection, regardless of how old she is. Ideally, she will remarry if she's a younger widow. And the church will love, serve, and care for and become the covering for those who are truly widows. Those who need it the most. And in that culture, of course, a woman who lost her husband, a woman who lost her son, think of the widow at Nain when Jesus raised her dead son. She'd lost her hope because her husband was gone and now her only son was gone and she had no protection, no provision. How do we handle this today? Again, we've got a welfare state. People get checks. People receive help. Again, I don't know how people live on a fixed income. It's beyond me. But how do we handle all that? Of course, that takes us to what? Application. And we're going to look at application through three G's. Gender, genes, and genuine. And I'm a little too proud of those. I'll just confess that right now. Gender, genes, and genuine. It's like the last one comes and you're like, yes, that's good. So I'm sorry for my pride there. Gender. Hmm. Oh, 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 gender. The main point is this with application for gender. God cares that women are taken care of. And so should we. Now listen to me. The Bible is clear. Singleness is a gift from God that is given to some people, male and female. Nothing cursed or bad or wrong with somebody who remains single for their whole lives. It's actually called a gift. But for those who don't have it, the call biblically is to marry. And you'll know if you got the gift of singleness or not. So maybe I can't find anybody. Maybe I've just got the gift of singleness. No, you don't. If you can't find anybody, that doesn't mean you've got the gift of singleness. It means that God hasn't brought that person to you yet. It's not saying, well, I'll resign myself to singleness. Singleness is not resigned for. It's a gift given to some. Everybody else should marry. Why? For many reasons. But here, in what we're talking about today, marriage is designed by God for men to help care for women. You're like, great day, Jason. It is 2022. I know. God has so designed the world and the people in it that marriage is honorable, 
Marriage is beautiful. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And marriage is where primarily men are to care for women. I think the greatest scourge in our culture today is a bunch of passive, lazy men. Sit on the couch and play their video games while their wife's out working and supporting the family. Ridiculous. I get it. Some people are disabled. I get it. That, that not what I'm talking about. Well, you know, she's, she's, she's expressed a desire that she wants to support us. I'm not all right with that. And I don't see the scripture being all right with that. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man as male and female was given dominion over God's creation. And in the image of God, the male and the female have roles that have been assigned to them that show us not just gender difference, but the beauty and holiness and care of God for His people. And we see it spelled out in Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For... The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And if that passage ended there, woe is us. But it doesn't. Husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, you don't say. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Husbands, you are to protect and provide for your wives. You are to give yourself up for her. You are to be her covering. Her protection, her provision, her head by God's design. And we can deny that all we want to as a culture. And we're only kicking against the goads. We're harming ourselves What if we just believed God and did what he called us to do? Now, so pasture, are you saying women shouldn't work? No, I'm not saying that at all. Are you saying that I should just have kids and stay at home? No, ish. I'm not saying you should just do that. 
I'm saying that's one of the highest, most glorious callings that God's ever given a creature on the face of his earth. So I am saying, have kids, take care of them, take care of your household, because it is a gloriously high, godly, holy calling. And husbands, be the head of that relationship. Be the covering there. Be the one who gives yourself up for your wife. Lays down your life for your wife. Well, how long do I have to do that? Until you die. Then you're off the hook. Then it's up to the kids and the grandkids to take care of her, right? Or the church. I'm just sad, really. I'm just sad as I look at our culture and I see the lies that we've bought into as men and as women. I'm going to say it. Ladies, you can't have it all. You can't. You know who the poorest people in our nation are? It's women. Single women who are trying to bring up their kids. God bless them. God help them. May the church help them if they can. Struggling to hold down a job. Struggling to find daycare. Struggling to find this. And I'm not saying, let let me tell you what, there are some super women, some wonder women out there doing it and doing it well. And it's taken a toll on our culture so much that we don't truly understand what's going on. Look at the poverty numbers. 70% of those in poverty are women and children in our nation. I wish I had that. I, I looked at it. I didn't write it down to cite it. I'll find where I found that and cite it. It's, it's just true. The numbers are there. Because we've got a bunch of deadbeat men who've run off and left their families or never taken the position of covering and head as the way they should have. And ladies, I don't blame you. I blame a bunch of lazy, passive, ungodly men. It's not the way God designed it from the beginning. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. How easy is it to respect a man who lays down his life for you day after day after day after day after day? That's gender. We probably spent too long there. Now, genes. That starts with a G, y'all. That ain't my blue genes. G-E-N-E-S. Family. Right? If your faith doesn't work at home, it doesn't work at all. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, we saw in 1 Timothy 5.8, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You go out and serve and minister and bless other people, but you go home and grump and gripe and hate your brothers and sisters and moms and dads and sons and daughters. It's not the way it works. The root is rotten. And the fruit that's being produced is false fruit and it's never going to last. If your faith does not work at home, it doesn't work at all. 1 John 4, 20-21, and I do completely understand that the context here is talking about in church. And it gives us a good picture of the family as well. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For, I keep switching back here. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother and his sister and his mom and his dad and his son and his daughter. Don't tell me you love the world and want to reach it if you don't love the people in your own home. And that looks like kindness, humility, gentleness, serving. All, the, all that fruit of the Spirit stuff we talk about that we want to display to others, it starts at home. And it starts here as well. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. These are your brothers and your sisters too. And if your faith doesn't start here, forget about it. Forget about going out there if it doesn't start here. The concept of covering again, family is a primary covering in God's plan. So gender, genes, and finally genuine. Does this passage matter to us in our day and time? I mean, again, we've got a safety net, we've got social services. How should we apply it? I don't know of any widows in our midst who need the church's support. But the Bible makes it clear that care for widows is a measure of the genuineness of our faith. James 1, 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What do widows and orphans share? They've lost their covering. And if we don't care for those who have lost their covering... Our religion is not real religion. Our religion is some self-soothing psychology that we've developed to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And again, the church only takes care of widows if their families don't. It starts at home. But if there's no concern or help for those who have no help, no covering in our hearts, minds, and lives, then our religion is false. It's not true religion. So, how do we live out the concern that we have? Well, I heard something this past week. What I say I'm going to do is not what I do. What I do is what I do. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I can say I care about widows, but you know how I primarily care about widows? By caring for widows. And our model is ultimately who? It's Christ himself. Who saw our need for covering. Right? And came and lived and died and was raised so that we might receive the ultimate provision. We were orphans. We were destitute. We had no covering. We were held captive by the devil to do his will. And Christ himself saw that need and he came and gave us the ultimate covering, the salvation of our souls. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We all need a covering. 
individually through salvation, and Christ has provided that through his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, glorification, and constant intercession for us. We get our covering through marriage, through our kids and our grandkids, and through the church. Spread your wings over me, Ruth said. Read these lyrics to this song. There's a song called My Covering. I died in your death, my Lord, glory to your name. Buried in the grave with you, glory to your name. And I arose with you, glory to your name. Your blood is my covering, my sheltering, where life comes from. Your blood is my innocence, my righteousness, where I begin. Once so far I am brought near, glory to your name. Raised and seated up with you, glory to your name. And reconciled to God in you, glory to your name. Death has no victory. Sin has no hold on me. I'm covered in my Christ who is my life. And I arose with you, my Lord, glory to your name. Your blood is my covering, my sheltering, where life comes from. Your blood is my innocence, my righteousness, where I begin. And your blood is my covering. Today... Jesus Christ himself stands and says, I will be your covering. Single, married, widowed, orphaned. Christ in and himself, Christ in and through the church says, I will be your covering. Will you submit to that covering? Will you rejoice in that covering? Will you come to him? Will we be the church that we're supposed to be, gender genes with a genuine faith, so that he might get glory and so that we might be protected and provided for? Your blood, O Lord, is my covering. Let's pray. Father, you have called us to be a countercultural people. You have called us to be those who go above and beyond what the safety net will do. You've called us to be those who represent Christ in the church through marriage as husband and wife. You've called us to care for widows who are truly widows indeed by becoming their covering either as their children or their grandchildren or as a loving person in their life, male or female, who can provide for them. And ultimately, you've called us as the church to spread your wings over the helpless, the hurting. And God, may we not just talk about it, may we do it to the praise of your glorious grace. And may we see the salvation that comes through the blood of Jesus. Spread that over us, God, and cover us. And may we work diligently in the power of your spirit to bring that covering to other people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.